0: Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today we had Bill Kouran, and um, thanks to his gracious time, this is another two-part edition. So look for part two of the podcast to drop on Monday morning and uh, enjoy part one. If you're uh, new to the podcast, please subscribe to our uh, channel on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you've been a subscriber and enjoy it, uh, please drop us a review. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Podcast. Today, I'm joined by noted golf course architect, Bill Kaur, from the Core Crenshaw Design Group. Bill has designed some of the world's greatest courses, including Sand Sandhills, Friar Friars Head, Lost Farm and Barn Bugle Dunes, and today we're at one of his newest courses, Sand Valley.
1: Bill, welcome on. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for coming out with the... Uh, uh, has turned out to be the coldest day of the year here in Wisconsin.
0: Yes, uh, I, as a Chicagoan, I know to not schedule outdoor activities in Wisconsin in mid November unless it's like skiing. Right, I, I think that would have been.
1: Maybe more apropos than what we did, yeah.
0: But I, I think getting a good thaw, in, like a good first cold, in is it's going to set me up for the. You're going to go back to warm places, yeah. but I'm set up for
1: winter now. Yeah, you're prepared. Your your introduction is over. Yeah. It's, it's now winter.
0: Yeah. Um, so I want
1: I want to kick things off by
0: something I've heard is that you consider Old Town Club to be one of the most Significant courses uh, in your architectural career, and just curious why why Old Town? What about it is so significant, and you know has shaped the way you think?
1: Well, Andy, I think it's it's uh, primarily because I grew up in North Carolina, and so I grew up playing basically on very very <laughs> uh, affordable courses. I'm talking very affordable, which meant they weren't necessarily at the top of the, uh, the scale in terms of architecture usually, but I was also able to be exposed to courses like Pinehurst number no. two and like Old Town Club. And those two courses, I think, came together to form my understanding, that probably became collectively, they became the cornerstone of my understanding of what interesting golf course architecture was all about. So I was exposed to Pinehurst first, but then when uh, I was at Wake Forest for four years there and Old Town Club literally being uh, adjacent to, connected to basically, the campus, I would walk there with my golf bag in the afternoons and, and begin playing golf. And uh, uh, the students could do that at the time for a dollar. They could play Old Town Club for one dollar. You signed in, paid your dollar. and You played even was the private club. Um, but Old Town... The more I played it, the more I realized that uh, it, it was just fascinating. And the more I began to think about golf architecture and actually study golf architecture, the more I began to realize how truly gifted Old Town was, and what Perry Maxwell did there on that site. Mm-hmm. What What was so
0: special about what Maxwell did? It, it, uh, about the different you know features.
1: Well, I think, first of all, it's a small site and it's quite hilly. So if you if you wanted to study how to lay a golf course on a fairly severe piece of ground and, and yet a, a fairly small piece of ground in terms of acreage, I know of no better place to do it than Old Town because of the way... Mr. Maxwell laid the holes out across those hills and and uh, the valleys and and made them work even though they're in close proximity to each other. You don't ever feel like you're in danger necessarily when you're playing golf. He he just did it in such a beautiful fashion, and like so many things that when it's well done, it looks so simple. And so I played Old Town for a long, long time before it finally struck me as to gee, how did he actually make this work? How did he get all these holes on this small piece of ground and make them work? And uh, so from a routing standpoint, it's an extraordinary uh, study and example. Yeah.
0: Um, You hear a a lot of architects have, like, a moment where they know they want to be, like, you know, where they become... Into mm-hmm. architecture and like whether it's playing a great course was it was it at Old Town where you really had like the architectural awakening or did it happen before at Pinehurst?
1: Uh, Neither one actually. Uh-huh. It uh, those two went together. as I said to form my uh, earliest impressions of what really interesting golf architecture uh, was was about. But no, it was actually after I had graduated from Wake Forest and I was about to go to graduate school at Duke. And uh, Uncle Sam decided that I should make a bit of a detour. <clears throat> and so I had spent uh, two years in the Army. And as I was get, about to get out, I saw a golf course near my home in North Carolina uh, in a town called High Point, North Carolina. And a man by the name of Pete died was designing a course there. And the course, was, it was called Oak Hollow Public Golf Course. And I had never heard of Pete and I, and I knew nothing about this golf course. And somebody said, oh, they're building a new golf course not not so far away. And I remember when I was, uh, 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 you know, I had a weekend away there from the, from the Army, and I'd gone home, and I went out to look at it. And it's when Pete was doing things very much like Harbordale. Shorter courses, finesse, yeah, railroad sleepers—the whole thing people think about—and uh, it was just fascinating to me. I, this was, of course, in the era of Robert Trent Jones Sr. And uh, when I saw this golf course, I thought, "Gosh, that's kind of—that's that's very interesting." And it, I think more than anything, uh, Andy, that's when out there that day walking around. The course wasn't open yet, but it wasn't too far away from opening. And I just remember, thinking, I wonder how you do this. I love golf. And I I think I know a good course when I see one, uh, but how does this happen? What's the process? And, you know, having been away from school for over two years, it's that decision-making, do I go to graduate school and then I'm thinking, well, I'm single. I don't I don't need much money or anything. I could uh, I might like to see how this is done. So uh, I remember the guy who was out there watering. It was on a little Sunday afternoon. The guy was out there watering, of the course. I asked him who did it. He said, I have some man named Die. Mm-hmm. And uh again it didn't mean anything to me at the time. This was in nineteen seventy one. And uh, I said, do you know how to get in touch with him? He said, oh, I'm sure his name's in the superintendent's Rolodex. in here we walk. He drove me back to the maintenance shop. We walked in there and he takes a, the old-fashioned Rolodex where you turn it around with all the, you know, cards, flip cards with, with names and addresses and phone numbers. And sure enough, he finds it. He finds Pete. So he gives me his number. I began calling Pete. He said, badgered him to see if I could get a job just to see how this was done. So that was the moment really.
0: How
1: long did it uh, take to get a job? Uh, Quite a while, actually. I mean, uh, I called Pete. uh, He, uh, I remember, I blatantly made up a story that I was going to be in Florida, uh, which I really didn't have any reason to be in Florida. But as soon as I was going to get get my discharge from the military, and uh, he said, "Well, if you're ever down here, you know, call me." So I just. I made my way down to Florida after I was discharged from the military, and I called him. In He—he uh, interesting enough, it was another of all things on a Sunday afternoon, and and Pete was—he was a huge Miami Dolphins fan, and this is in the time when the Dolphins were dominant. Yeah, you know the year. Actually, I think that they went undefeated. Shula. Right. Don yeah. Shula, right. Larry Zaka, Grade, uh, these guys, they, you know, it's just, Pete was such a huge fan. There the 72 Dolphins, that's the other day when I'm defeated, right? Yeah, I think so, <laughs> I think so. So, I remember calling, and Pete, he, you know, he had no, no interest whatsoever in what I wanted to talk about, but I do remember, he he, he said, where are you? I said, well, I'm at the whatever it is. I can't remember, some of Motel hotel there, yeah. Beach and uh, he said, "Sure, I can talk to you." He said, "I'll be over there." but like, what? He's going to come over here? He wanted to watch the football game. He had a bunch of folks at his house. Yeah. He came over there. I didn't know who. I didn't know what to look for. I didn't know. I didn't know what he looked like or anything. I'm just asking people as they walk in the door, "Are you Pete on They all look at no. Well, then he, anyway, he he walks in, and he says, "So." You want to talk about golf architecture? I said yes. He said, uh, "All right, let's go to your room." I what? And and so here we go to my room. He plops down on the bed and gets the TV. Face turns the football game on. That's all he wanted to do was watch the football game. So he sort of absentmindedly talked to me while he watched the football game. So that was. was, uh, and then he said, "Well, we're eventually we're going to be doing a golf course up near home in North Carolina." It turned out to be the Cardinal Club in Greensboro. Uh-huh. He said, "You can come out there, and maybe, maybe we'll find something for you to do." And it was another year or more after that that they actually started the Cardinal. I went out there. He didn't remember me from anybody. I mean, he just yeah. you know. It, uh, but he,
0: hey, you were you. Said- I was persistent. And he served an immediate, you you, yeah. were, you you fixed this problem. You wanted to watch the
1: Dolphins, and you're probably a great excuse for him to get out, and he, out of the exactly. house. Exactly, he was able to sit there and watch the entire game. The <laughs> game was over, gone. You know, and, and so. Uh, but it was, uh, it was just one of those sort of odd things <laughs> that happens. What, um you know.
0: Everybody talks about the railroad ties, and then you know people remember him for the TPC courses he built. Like the you know the regular fan, but like, what would you say is the most underappreciated aspect of Pete Dye's work as an architect?
1: He changed the direction of golf architecture twice. Yeah, that's I know no one else has ever done that. I mean, he, he started you know he he first changed it with courses like Harbor Tail. Uh, when Robert Trent Jones, Sr. was doing the exact opposite, doing, you know, par 72, 7,000-yard 7, championship golf courses, that was the thing, that was the, the motto, that was the, the selling point. And, and uh, Pete went the exact opposite direction, shorter, finesse courses, quirky he had seen. He and Alice had seen the railroad ties when they played a lot in Scotland, and thought, "Well, that could work. We can do some of that." And uh, it was just something that people in this country, unless they had traveled to Scotland or Ireland, they, they just weren't used to. It. So, um, the fact that Harbour Town was so well received—I think the first tournament there was in 1970, in, if I recall—Arnold Palmer won. Yeah, and and so. The uh, the fact it was so well received instantly put him, you know, in the public eye as far as the golf course architect. And then pretty soon, everything you saw started going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, then when the TPC Jacksonville came in, which was many years later, but he changed it again completely Mm -hmm. there. So I know I know no one else who's who's done that, who's actually changed and <clears throat> once Pete did Harbortown and the finesse course type type situation, and then when he changed to the more challenging, longer, whatever you want, you want to have you describe it, uh, TPC type course, the next thing he saw was everyone was doing the same. It was just he he literally changes. Not just the direction, but if you watch the progression, you saw many courses appear, like like Pete's early course at Harbortown. But then after TPC, you saw many, many courses appear that suddenly looked like that course. Yeah, the architecture
0: <clears throat> industry through time has changed so many times. It's, it's different. It's kind of crazy, but for one man to do it twice. Yeah, I know of no one else that's done it. Uh Um, So a lot of people say that Pete Dye was a penal architect um, versus a strategic one. What what would you consider him
1: being? Well, Andy, I think certainly I'm a bit partial to Pete's Harbor Town, so to speak, uh, phase, where finesse was a little more... uh, at the, at the cornerstone of the golf course, and I, I think then they were extraordinarily strategic, playing to certain positions to get to other, to get to angles and things. I think is is Pete saw the game changing, mm-hmm. meaning players hitting the ball farther and farther and farther, and and the, the uh, I think as he then changed to try to challenge those. Those players at the TPC courses, um, they were still strategic. They were certainly strategic for, you know, the best players. They still wanted to play to certain positions, usually right next to some very visible hazard. And uh, uh, T would always give you something to look at. There was always something in your eye as a player. And more often than not, if you could play close to that, you, you had an advantage in, in some way. But, um, you know, I think I think Pete and Alice and, and the work that they've done through the years is, uh, is just some absolutely fascinating, fascinating courses. And, and yet you do hear about was very painful. I think a lot of that depends on what team you should play from. from. I think a lot of it um, you know is uh, a, a situation that's, that's more the impression that comes from the TPC course type yeah. phase of their of their architecture. So um, I see it as, as strategic. And penal Yeah.
0: yeah I, I I agree. I, I
1: think they, I I think
0: I fall on the strategic side because and i I grew up playing Pete Dad Force in Florida like all every family vacation. And you know, still when I go there, it's all angles and um, you know, you do have to be a little bit better of a player, but the strategy is so good and all that stuff. I had Brian Silva on the podcast a few months ago and he said he had an architectural awakening when he was sitting in a I think he was in a doctor's waiting room looking at a sports illustrated and he saw the aerial of PGA West and all of a sudden the light bulb went off about the angles mm-hmm. and how it fundamentally changed the way he designed courses
1: and it it, it not many architects could to do that. So yeah, yeah. no it's uh... Again, Pete and Alice were were amazing with that. And the thing they were able to do too, I think Andy's <clears throat> they could do some really unusual type contouring. And whether you want to call it the mounds or the, even the you know, the railroad ties along the water and then the certain types of greens, shapes and, and angles and but some really abrupt things that that people weren't necessarily used to seeing, mm-hmm. and uh, and yet they worked. Yeah, it's very very seldom you'll ever see a Pete Dye golf course, even a hole on the Pete Dye golf course that doesn't function mm-hmm. from a playing standpoint. And other people who then said, "Oh, that's what's selling now. That's what I'm going to produce." Never, I don't. Oftentimes, didn't have the same insights as to how you truly play golf within the confines of the golf course. And so you would see some um, knockoff models, shall we say, of TPC courses that, uh, that probably were far too painful because of the, the, there was just probably not that bit of insight as to how will this actually play, how mm-hmm. will this actually
0: it, it looked like it, but it didn't.
1: Exactly. Visually, because it might have mounds and pot bunkers and or water down the side or certain angles and things, people are always, you know, it's the same. But when it came down to the ability to maneuver a golf ball through the golf course and be successful, uh, a lot of times, you know, other people just didn't have the same insight that Pete did as to how to make that work. So, obviously, if you
0: had a big influence on your career. Who would you say are some other, like, gold architects that you
1: draw influence from? Well, again, having grown up uh, in North Carolina and been exposed to a lot of Donald Ross courses, I would have to say Mr. Ross without question. I played a lot of his courses uh, when I was a kid. And, and of course, since then, but uh, then Perry Maxwell because of Old Town. And uh, mentioned earlier about the genius of the routing of Old Town on a fairly severe, relatively small site, but the greens contours. The, Old Town had some of the most amazing greens. And with regard to internal contours and the putting surface, the Maxwell rolls, as they were called. And uh, at the time when I was playing in Old Town, I didn't, I'd never seen southern hills or prairie dunes or crystal downs or other courses that mr maxwell had, had designed and um, so i just didn't know i saw these screens or, these screens are amazing and they're interesting and they were so different than than other places you'd go because the, the contours were internal to the putting surface they weren't all the edges mm-hmm. feeding down in and then disappearing putting services. These, you might start quietly on the edges and then something, a Maxwell roll will appear, you, which you use beautifully to separate levels, you know, in the green. So uh, that's not very Maxwell and, uh, and Donald Ross. And then, of course, as soon as you go see McKenzie courses, I guess we've all, you know, they're so inspirational in their vision and the creativity that you go wow, look at that. Who ever thought of that? And, and then you go see, you know, C.B. McDonald or Seth Rayner things, and you go, I could ever think of that? Who would have ever thought of that? And uh, so when you you start putting it, it all comes in layers. But Ross was the, was the very early layer, followed by Maxwell, and then followed by, uh, you know, others, but certainly including... Uh, Kindle. so if you, you could build like a super team
0: you know a golden age architect and you got you get you can have somebody do multiple tasks, but you have somebody doing greens routing and um, we'll say strategy and another guy doing like the aesthetics and bunkering. how would you put it together?
1: Mm. well I don't know yeah, Dann mean the world. Those guys were all good at all those things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know that any one of them was, you know, I'd say was the absolute best among the names you mentioned at, at any one of those. I, I think McKenzie certainly had a flair
0: mm-hmm. for the
1: visual inspiration and presentation. I mean, it just... You, you go to his courses and just the visuals alone, And of course, a lot that has to do with the sites he, he got to work with, too. But uh, um, I don't know that I've ever, ever walked onto or off of a McKinsey course that you just didn't find inspiring. And, uh, you know, I, having said that, the Maxwell courses, <clears throat> truly, truly extraordinary, were they maybe as. Visually inspiring as McKinsey courses? Maybe not. But I, I've never seen a Maxwell course that wasn't well routed. But more than that, it was the greens. Mm-hmm. It was the green contouring. But can you say Maxwell's greens were better than Ross's greens, were better than McKinsey's greens? No, they're just different. That's what made the whole era so interesting. From a golf architecture perspective, you just had all these, these different perspectives, different presentations that were being put forth, all of which were based upon trying to complement the, the natural landscapes they had to work with, find interesting sites, and then showcase those and bring to life the golf in the in the most natural fashion from those interesting sites. So, uh, I, I truly don't think I can say, oh. This one was better at this, yeah. that one was better at that. I it's pretty much toss up type material there. They were all
0: really great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're all different. That's yeah. you know
1: unique and different. Uh, oh you go again, you you go watch a uh, you go to a McKinsey course at you know, Cypress Point or you know, something and you, you walk around and say, Oh man, this is some of the most interesting you know, certainly landscape, some of the most beautiful course in the world probably, but the greens are really interesting and in this and that and other. And then you go to prairie Dunes. you go, Wow, these may be some of the most interesting greens ever and then you and, and then you know, you you go to just different places, and as soon as you think something's the best, yeah, oftentimes you walk off from another course. Wow, I thought that was real. maybe this is maybe this is just as good. You know, it's fascinating to walk around Oakmont yeah. Then you look at it and you go, know, "This may be the most amazing set of greens in the world." You know, in terms of contours in the greens, and uh, that to me is just the beauty of it. There's no one has an absolute lock on the best. It's,
0: it's so much into I felt the same way this summer. That I played some really great spots, and every time I'd walk off, you know, perfect example, I played Sandhills. I was like, man, that was unbelievable. And then, like, you know, a month or so later, I got the chance to play Crystal Downs. Hmm. And I walked off that, and I was like, I might think be the best course in the world, yeah, <laughs> but exactly. it's, like, it's like if I went back the next day, but i would yeah. probably feel the exact same
1: way. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's how I, I look at some of these, you know, different journalistic, uh, ra- you know, rankings, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, they're all it's all fascinating to read and, and all this, but I, I look at them. Really, can there be a number one golf course in the world? I just don't think that's possible. I guess you might put lump together fifty or so that I think, in any given day, you could go to any one of them and say, "I think this is the best course in the world, or the best course ever played." And then go to the other forty-nine and probably say the same thing. And like, how can you <clears throat> compare uh, sandhills,
0: which you guys have eight thousand acres to route? Versus like Marion, which is routed on that tiny little property. Yeah. It's like, and they're so distinctly different. It's the yeah. yeah. one can't be better. They're just different, but they're both great.
1: Well, and that's if there's been a problem with golf architecture, Andy, it's that it's any any time it becomes more stereotyped, mm-hmm. that's when that's when the problem. Because, like you're saying, what you want is as much variety as possible. It's, you don't want every course looking like some other course. I mean, Ben and I both today, if, if we can somehow create a golf course that, that looks like the site it's on, looks like it belongs there and has great individual character, we're extraordinarily pleased with the results. I think those courses that you're describing, that were, you know, done many decades ago. Um, you might recognize them as of coming out of a certain design philosophy sort of thing, but they had no apparent connection in terms of visuals or, you know, uh, they, they weren't trying to just mass produce yeah. courses. They, they, each one was a complement to the landscape it was put upon. And yes, you could go to you could go all those courses or wherever, and say this might be the best course I've ever seen. Only to do the exact same thing a week later in some far off place. It's, it's the
0: beauty of golf. Yeah. It's a variety is the key that everything it's within one course, and you know within courses across the country, and it's uh, so with that. You always, everybody always points to your, you know, these magnificent sites that you guys get a build on, but I, I'm really interested in, you know, the places like Talking Stick, uh, um, Creek, and Turning Forest where they're flatter, there's less features. Like, Do you guys approach those sites differently than in terms of kind of how you go about building them? Do you have to
1: do more stuff with those or is it you know, it's similar from philosophy. Well, I mean, there's some sites, you know, Andy, we've been on the guys that have been so extraordinarily blessed, I guess, uh, would be a apt description, uh, in that we've been given some truly special sites to work with, sites that were so naturally gifted for golf. And, and uh, uh, a number of those sites have, you know, have produced courses that people consider to be very special and uh, folks talk about a lot mm-hmm. and are they high up in the rankings of the US or the world or whatever um, <clears throat> you know we look at those and we're so grateful for those opportunities and yet you mentioned talking stick mm-hmm. talking stick is probably the worst thing one of the worst sites we've ever had. It was so flat, four hundred acres for thirty six homes. And I absolutely remember putting a Coca-Cola can at one end of the four hundred acres, going to the other end of the four hundred acres where the binoculars could see the Coca-Cola can sitting on the ground. That's how flat it was. And there was no there was one tree on the on the site. It was not good soil. And you know, I remember going out there with Dana and who, you know, founded True Golf. And they were going to manage the construction and the, and the, and the, the operational side for the tribal community there in Arizona. And the member Dana just said, I well, why don't you build two different golf courses out here? He just kind of smiled looked at me. He said, we had looked at some sites before that I thought were too steep, and too, you know, we just didn't know how to work with he said, I don't think you can tell me this is too severe. And so, well, you know, I that's true. And you know, we laughed about it, so still do to this day. But the potential for that site, Andy, was minimal at best, uh, as opposed to the potential for a site, whether it's like Sandhills in Nebraska, or Cabot, you know, Nova Scotia, or other sites that we've had to work with, well, here in Sand Valley. But there are potential, there's some sites that have the potential that if you don't create something that's truly one of the special golf courses in, you know, make the definition here, but sometimes in the world, you know, people say the sand hills. Oh, that must have been so much fun. And this, you know, I can't truthfully say that. that was a lot of fun. Yeah. You're out there on the site. The wind's blowing 30 miles an hour, half the time. It's blowing away as fast as you can build it. And, but in the back of your mind, you know that if you don't build on the world's outstanding golf course, you failed. Mm-hmm. So the potential was so extreme and the margin for success uh-huh. so small. Talking stick in the hand, the potential was so minimal, and and the the opportunity for success. You think, boy, we don't have to do much <laughs> to, to make this better if we can build anything that resembles interesting golf. So to this day, when I go and I live in Scottsdale, so when I go out there, I you know the parking lot's full. There are people playing golf. They repeat play. This will be their 20th year they've been open. And uh, I sometimes just stop and I'll, I just look around and, I, you know, I think uh, people, journalists particularly, like to ask all the time, what's the best course you've ever done? Well, how do you measure success? How do you define best whatever? If best is defined by taking what its potential was, and going beyond that to a certain point. At what point did you go beyond its potential to the point that people enjoyed playing it for 20 years and keep coming back again and again? Make talking stick. You could make an argument. The talking stick might be the best thing we've ever done. I had a, I had a great experience, but I, I
0: was in Phoenix for work, and I was working for a startup, and they made they booked me an Airbnb and I was there for two weeks. Mm. And they booked me an Airbnb and I stayed in these people's house with them. I'd never like you mm. know, met yeah. these people. Yeah. And uh like the first night I'm there I got like the I got the terrible flu. Mm. And I was like laid up for the whole week and then I felt okay to play golf on, on yeah. like Saturday late afternoon. I went I went out to talking stick and they had a concert festival going on. Yeah. So I got to play out there, there was nobody out there um, like late and I was listening to music just playing and I had such a good time out there. It, I mean, I always liked looking at an, ar- a, an architect's work on flat ground. Like I always think Seth Rainer did such a good job with his a lot of sites that weren't, he didn't have a lot of great sites. Yeah. And uh, Donald Ross was another was another one that came to mind that really utilized what he had really well. And I mean, do you? I mean, do you think of, you kind of said it? Do you think a great judge of looking at an architect's work is what they did with their worst site?
1: Well, it's certainly something to be considered. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's one thing to take an extraordinarily gifted site and not mess it up. Mm-hmm. That's the fear of having a Truly, truly special site. But yes, it's another thing to take a site with little or no potential and actually out of it comes something that proves over a you know, lengthy period to be appreciated. So, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I remember talking to Candy. You have to, when you go out there now or when you played, of course, they planted lots of trees mm-hmm. and creosote bushes grew up and all this mm-hmm. together, but we staked out the 36 holes. And you know, they had the PVC poles stuck up for the greens, landing areas, you know, tees and that sort of thing. You could see every pole, you could stand in one spot, see every single pole for every point on all 36 holes. It looked like a punji stick trap out there. I mean, it just looked like you know, straws sticking up everywhere. And you just stood there, you didn't know where you went from one pole to the next to the next. It was just like. I remember talking to Ben, and I said, Ben, if you've ever had any theoretical hulks on flat ground you wanted to build, now's the time, because we've got to come up with 36 hulks from nothing, zero. There was not one contour on the contour map, it was just white. And so, <laughs> we just sat there, and, and uh, Dave Axland, who's worked with us for so many years, and well, said, well, what kind of, what would you like to start with? You know, because it told us kind of where they would like the clubhouse to be from an entry road, because at one time they were considering building a hotel internal between the two golf courses. And that's why there's that space right, right there, kind of the hole in the donut right next to the clubhouse that, uh, that both courses wrap around. And so we said, okay, we have a starting point, you know, we'll go, we'll go from here. And from that point on, it was purely theoretical. And people say, why would you guys ever do that? Well, we had finished the Sandhills very soon before that. So we'd come and we were, were doing a course in Georgia called Cusco Will at the time. You know, Sandhills an extraordinary site where you just followed exactly what the ground was going to give you. Cusquilla, another interesting site very different than sand Hill but very interesting where you follow you followed the right? mm-hmm. ground, and then we looked at Taurus and we said well there's nothing to guide us here let's just let's just see if we can do this variety
0: of sites yeah oh, <laughs> true variety
1: in sites yeah
0: what uh so, did you guys just kind of let your imagination run wild there, or was, was there anything in particular with it being flat that you really, you know, you said we need to have
1: this kind of interest, create interest here more so than anywhere else? Well, the gold again, as I would kid Dana Garvey, I said, "Now you, you, you're telling me you want two totally different golf courses on this site?" He said, "Yes." Mean? Okay, good luck and. uh, but there was a, uh, an attempt made to make the, the south course. Um, um, they've just been recently renamed, so I'm, I'm going to mess this up. I off think my, I played the north uh, course. I, I, I'm going to stick with the south. <laughs> and uh, But the south course, more of a parkland type course with elevated greens and greenside bunkers, and, and then there were more trees, and there a bit of water and that sort of thing. Uh, so it it was intended to have more of that feel. The north course was meant to be the low profile, rolled off greens, not severe like pinehurst but still crowned off, bunkers lower profile, and and more open windswept, you know, feeling. And uh, and in the mix but between all that. <clears throat> There's a, there is a major drainage uh, area that goes down through it. So, we did create all these lows. You, you might not notice them much if you're out there. We mm-hmm. created all the lows that would would allow water to enter from way at the north end of the property and eventually work its way out the south. But uh, we just did it differently than probably most of the courses that have been done in the desert. Most of them do the mounding on the edges of the property. Mm-hmm. And then start to work inward. We left the edges of the property just flat, yeah. like the desert. And then start doing the contours. The more in, away from the edges you get, the more contour there is. So it went, it went inward and downward and upward, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, uh, I, at least to us, it just felt a little bit natural. As yes, I remember that.
0: Well, the third, I think it's the third hole on the north course. It's a par four, long par four on the boundary line. And there's just nothing out that. Yeah, area. well, that's what the whole property looked like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's probably a good way to just go to the edges and you'll see what it was.
1: Before. Well, it's interesting, you know, Andy, because the second hole on the on the north course, or the par five,
0: uh-huh.
1: goes right down that boundary. That I Yeah, it's a big fairway. Yeah, right. No fairway bunkers. Big fairway to the right, out of bounds all the way down the left-hand side, and the green sitting right next to the out of bounds, you know, five hundred twenty yards or so down there, further down from yeah. the tee. And you stand on the tee, you look right down the out of bounds. You see the green, you see the flag. There's a bunker to the right of the green, but the key is the out of bounds and the yeah. green sitting right next to. And so you can play as far away from out of bounds as you want, but sooner or later you're going to deal with it. You can play the tee shot way away from out of bounds. You can play the second shot way away from out of bounds. Now you're faced with a potential pitch right over that bunker to a skinny green with the out of bounds right behind it. Mm-hmm. And if you avoid out of bounds all the first two or three shots going yeah. down there, so at some point you take on the out. And Ben and I, I, remember we were doing this day-facts so when we were all out there where no, no one's going to understand this all. No one. And sure enough, we got some, uh, I, I don't know that they do this anymore, but back then, Golf Digest, you, you get some comments back from the Raiders, you know, when the, they were evaluating the, quote, best new courses or something that had been nominated, so... Ben, I love it, loved it because we we read through some of the comments. You know, they were not named by who said them, but one of the comments from one of the golf digest readers was, This is the worst golf hole I've ever seen. <laughs> and, and then I got, just got sick of it. No one's going to ever understand this. And yet, Jeff Ogilvie, you know, who lives in Scottsdale and who's a very ardent, student of architecture as well have been yeah. such an extraordinary player. He thought, I heard him say, it's just a fascinating whole. It's just, you know, for that very reason, you have to deal with that about at some point. Yeah. And, and the old, what was that old commercial paper now or pay me there?
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I had a talk with Ogilvy one time about <laughs> architecture and he, speaking exactly to this whole He made an analogy that I will never forget. It was maybe one of the best golf course architecture analogies I've ever heard. He said, imagine a tennis match between Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer where they could only hit it right down the middle of the court all game. How, how exciting would that be? It'd be extremely boring. The interest is on the edges. And when they, when they have to play to the edges to win, and it's just like this, the second hole of the talking stick, is eventually you have to play the bet if you want to
1: score. Yeah. And that's where the interest comes. Yeah. No, that is a beautiful way to put it, and he's absolutely correct. uh, You know, it gets into that whole discussion about width, how much width you need for interest. And there for a lot of years, we went to, you know, things became more and more constricted in terms of width of fairways, which basically rendered play golf much like that description of watching two extraordinary tennis players just say you cannot hit it anywhere but right down the middle of the court it's not particularly that interesting it's when you start to play the edges to gain an advantage and if the course has edges and gives you a reason to play close to them to gain an advantage that's when it becomes really exciting but talking stick I mean we didn't we've always said and people have kidded us but theres it's true we look for whatever features we can to to give inspiration to holes you know features that exist on the property and talking stick um, one tree there was one little ditch I mean tiny little ditch that some poor person had tried to dig I'm sure many years ago to direct water in case it ever rained or suddenly. But that ditch still exists. It's on the right-hand side of, I think it's number seven now. One time it was number, maybe it's ten on the north course. Yeah, and there's a little ditch over there. They they switch the numbers of the holes, but it goes straight away. It's a hole goes straight away from the clubhouse,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, there to the to the north, and and there's this tiny little ditch, just straight as it can be. And we thought. We just make a hole going right down that ditch, uh-huh. and if you can play close to it, it's on the right versus the out of bounds on the left on the, the second hole. you talking about? So at times you get desperate, you start looking for things. What can we? What can we? Some inspiration for a hole.
0: Yeah, it's it's that. How do you with so uh, switching gears and going from talking to sand Sandhills, like, there you had probably the complete opposite feeling of, you know, feature overload. What was the most difficult thing about going from, I think it was 132 holes to 18?
1: Well, you know, Andy, it was, we always knew, I mean, yes, we had many, many holes, 132, 136, I don't I can't remember exactly now. there are still, most of them, I think, are still on a little piece of paper I used to carry around in my pocket mm-hmm. when I would go up there and there are these tiny little marks, you know, that, that didn't mean anything to anyone but me, personally. I knew where one of those little marks was. I could go out and find it and, and stuff from individual holes. But, it's, but as soon as you started to say, I really want this hole, most often, that cut across some of the other potential holes. So you you started eliminating things. Uh, the big the big thing with sandhills is trying to truly believe going into it as you start construction that you pick the best one, and that's just pure judgment calls. It's it's uh, do we like the sequels of the holes? Do we like the directions? Do we like the the um, you know the feel as you're progressing. Do we like the the way the, the course is moving through the bigger dunes and the softer dunes? We were you know we're trying to get it again to your point variety. You know I've, I've heard people who said, oh gee, you should have put more holes up in those giant dunes. Well, understand that from a visual perspective, but golf's played on the ground <coughs> and at the sand hills, and you you know. Walking and playing golf, and we just felt like it should be, you know, a nice combination of that landscape. Big dunes, small dunes, in between sizes. Mm -hmm. And so you just try to start to analyze all the different, you find individual holes that that you'd really like to build, but you try to then start figuring out. What's the circulation pattern? How best to get around this property in this interesting fashion and showcase the most interesting elements? And what are the best individual holes to do that? And, and pretty soon you start picking a few and a lot of a lot of others start falling mm-hmm. by the way. But mm-hmm. it it is. It's one of our biggest concerns in that was that we finished the course and then look back and, think, oh, we should have done that We should have. You know, and and I can very candidly say, I think if you talk to Ben, certainly if you talk to me, I think we would both very quickly say, no, we're happy with the ones we pick. Feelings have to be in effect. I, I think I, I could see that perspective, but I actually do believe we do feel it. I don't think we've been trying to talk ourselves into it. I remember playing golf out there before the course opened, just Ben and me. Yeah. We played, we were walking down. I remember we got to the 17th hole, and, you know, of course we both knew all the different discussions that had gone on, different ways to go. And I remember looking at Ben. and saying, would you change anything? And he said, no. And that's just the two of us standing there. There's no one listening. Yeah. There's no one. It's not like, God, we probably should have taken that hole over there or that one instead of this. You know, there was none of that. We were very comfortable, and I think for for both of us, uh, that was real. I mean, we—if we, we had had any inclination that no, we missed it, we would have admitted. And so I don't think it's just like we just said it to make ourselves feel better, or you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, Kyle Eglin, who was on the podcast, uh,
0: said. Uh, you know, there was a, a big argument with uh, you and Dick Youngscat about the fourth dream. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know you you ripped some move some stuff around there. Who do you think uh, do you think Dick would admit you were right now?
1: You that ask Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Dick's such a good friend. I just think the absolute world, of Dick. And but uh, yeah, he, he wasn't very happy with me. And he was not happy with me, um, but uh, you'd have to ask Dave what his uh, opinion of that is, but yeah, he was. He he always envisioned, he, he and I had gone out there actually one day, and I don't think I'm saying something, I shouldn't say, but uh, Dick might disagree with this, but I don't think so, but we have gone out there one day, just the two of us and him. I told Dick that we were thinking about building a green up where it is. And we were going to use that, what became that big blowout both or short left to create the sand to then pile against the natural dune to make the green. And it was going to be one sort of inspired by the fifth green at uh, Prairie Dunes, in case you happen to know that, where mm-hmm. Maxwell did a very similar thing. Pile sand out the next, off the side of a dune, and with a drop off, you know, beside that dune. And uh, Dick was talking to me. He said, Bill, why don't you build the green down here low to the right? And Dick did often do that type of stuff. You know, he just said, I want you to do the least with the property you can. And that's why I think he was saying, why don't you build the green down here low to the right? Because yeah. he's going, why would you dig that sand other and pile it up there and build the green? You could just build it down here low right. And Ben and I talked about this quite a bit. And we both just felt like it was more interesting sitting up there. Yeah, so I went through all that with Dick, and he and I, and, and uh, at the end of that day, I sincerely believed that Dick was in agreement we built the green up there, high left. Dick sincerely believed we were in agreement we were going to build it down there the low the right. And so uh, we went our separate ways, and Dick went off for, I don't know. A few days, I can't remember. He was usually there all the time, but he went off for a few days. And meanwhile, he went up there the very next day and started building the green up top. And
0: what do they say when the cats away the night? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you
1: know, so uh, Dick came back. He was he was not happy. It was yeah. the only time where he was really, really he, I don't think he spoke to me for like two weeks thereafter. And I was spending most all the summer up there, so. He was not very happy with me, but uh, the most, at least for me, maybe the most amusing part is the first picture ever published of the Sand Hills Golf Club. Ron Whitten from Golf Digest was up there, and as the course was just about grown in, Ron was taking some photographs and he wrote a piece about the Sand And there's a double page, double page spread one photograph of the fourth grade And Dick saw that. And he got yeah, he looked at me, he goes, You did this? I know you did this. I know you set this up <laughs> He was convinced, which I had nothing to do. I didn't even know they were gonna I knew Ron had been up there was gonna do a piece about it, but no idea what the picture was gonna make. But to this day Dick's convinced that I had that set up with Ron to run that big picture. Double page picture of the fourth hole that the sand. Um,
0: with regard to the with him being a successful building architect, do you think that helps with him being, you know, the working with you guys like in a, a little bit more hands-off role? Like, do you think him being an architect helped the success of that project?
1: Well, I think that was a, a very big contributing factor. His understanding building in general, and design in the process. Um, but Andy, he's Dick Young's cap, simply the only human being I've ever met that I truly believe could pull that project off. Mm-hmm. As much as I admire so many people for whom we've worked and people I've met who've been so successful, I don't know anyone else that could have made that happen. The combination of patience patience but concept and and the ability to communicate with the, the the local community the ranching community there and and then just to convince anyone that's had any hope possibility I mean you, you put it in the context people look back now probably say oh well okay yeah it happened well you can only imagine Trying to go out and convince someone because Dick's not a wealthy man, mm-hmm. and go out and try to convince someone that that uh, they should invest in the building of a golf course in the Sandhills of Nebraska, where the population base averages two people per square mile. And uh, you know, it's just like really, you're going to do this. And I remember a guy that, that Ben and I knew very well from back east, and. He got out there to look at it and <clears throat> his, he summed it all up to me when he called. He goes, Bill, there are no people. There's no one there. You're going to build a company there. And, and so, yeah, Dick, the, his ability to pull off that and the faith that people who invested with him had in Dick, it wasn't in us and it wasn't in that concept because the concept was just like seeing pure folly mm-hmm. and you know, here are Crump's folly at Time Valley. Well it you know, books are written about that. But Dick's <laughs> this idea of going out there <coughs> and doing this was received by almost everyone who saw it as absolute folly. Well we- seen pictures in old National Geographic magazine. I can't remember from when. Could have been the could have been the 60s, late 1960s, but he had seen pictures in an article that was in National Geographic about the sand hills of Nebraska. And they, it was a fairly lengthy article it had it had had uh, stories of ranching families and, and things but talked about the ge- Geology of the site and all the sand dunes and ridden. So Ben remembered those photographs of those dunes from that article. I had, uh, or first heard about the sand hills in Nebraska from Doug Peterson, who was longtime superintendent of Prairie Dunes. Later ended up coming to be the superintendent of Austin Golf Club, who did in Austin. But I remember back in the 1980s walking. With Doug down the eighth hole at Prairie things. and I made some comments. And, Can you imagine having a piece of property like this to build a course on? And Doug was originally from Nebraska. And he looked at me, and in, in his very grappling voice, he says, Bill, I know where there's land better than this for golf. I go, What? He goes, where is it? He said, Nebraska. Well, I'd never been in the state. I thought Nebraska, Other Nebraska was just flat cornfields, you know, and stuff. He goes, No, there's a big sand in the area. He said, I've been through it many times. He said, It's fabulous. He said, Probably never be a golf course there because there are no people. Yeah. He said, But he said, It's fabulous land for golf. Ron Witten from Golf Digest, you yeah. know, from Nebraska, yeah. he knew about it. But the fact that when Dick called, I remember vividly being in the office with Ben and Scott Sayers, our business manager, all these years. And Dick got on a you know, we got on a conference call for Dick and he said, Guys, I'm calling this CP. to see if would be interested in coming to, to the sand hills of Nebraska to look at a site in a, well, I think he started off saying, Look at a site in Nebraska. And there's you know of course Dick can't see us when we were sitting there we were listening. And all of a sudden he says, in a park called the Sand Hills of Nebraska, I'm sure you've never heard of it. I look at Ben, he looks at me and he thought of that National Geographic thing, and I thought of Doug Pearson. Yeah. Here we go. We'll be there. We'll come see you. That's, that's
0: amazing. It's, it's, uh, that is, it, it's a, when you drive in there, you just, you see golf everywhere, but I imagine it, it's, is it, Building it is just, I think the thing that sticks out to me, there are spectacular green complexes, but the scale and having that scale to be able to use it in a strategic way, I mean, that's got to be so rare yeah, on all your sites to have that kind of intimidation factor with the
1: bunkers, right? Well, and, and the bunkers certainly were inspired by just the natural blowouts that occurred. From wind erosion there in the sand hills, and so uh, you know we saw those and said, okay, that needs to be the model for the bunkers out here. And uh, of course the ranchers whom we got to know very well through the through the process, but they all thought we just completely lost our minds because they're trying to get those sandy blowouts to heal over, mm-hmm. you know, so they don't just keep getting bigger and bigger. And here we are making some, and uh, but it was interesting. To listen, one of the ranchers was out there one day, and I was talking about something. I said, well, I think we're going to make this sandy blowout over here. And he goes, Well, you can, but it would never occur naturally there. Mm-hmm. And Well, okay, should not faced the wrong direction. And yeah, cattle don't right. go through there. And the, most of the blowouts occurred mm-hmm. when there was some traffic pattern okay. going through up a dune that'd wear a spot and then pretty soon the wind would start blowing and blowing it like a giant bunker that's there left of 18 in the sand Hills. Mm-hmm. that's there because of the windmill that's there because the cows would go through and they'd always go to the windmill they'd come down from the top down the dunes. they'd come from the bottom they'd come across what's in front of number one at the mm-hmm. sandhills and so when we got there that was just this magnificent sandy expanse and the, all caused by the cattle coming down to the windmill that pumped the water into the holding tank there.
0: Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard that a lot of people have been asking you about camping out on the sites and routing, and I have to apologize. You know, one of, one of your friends told me you did that. and
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think I know who that friend was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a young guy walk up to me in Branson not long ago who's working on the course and he asked me that same thing and he says, Is it true that you take a tent and pitch out of you pitch tent out on the site and start walking and following all the animal trails? And I go, I think that rumor has been embellished. No, I had never pitched a tent out on the site. And in that, have I followed animal trails? Absolutely. It's mm-hmm. been my sense walking sites, particularly wooded, hilly sites, that animals figure out the easiest way to traverse the property. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's in search of water or going to and from water. But they find the ways to get around the severe parts of the property in the least taxing way. So if you're going to a site, you know, not anything to begin. But you find a nice deer trail, cattle trail, whatever, elk trail, whatever it may be. Generally, it's going to find its way from high ground to low ground, probably back to high ground, in a way that's not horrible to walk. Plus, if you're in the bushes and the woods, you already got a bit of a trail to follow. You're not so, finding it as much. Exactly. So it's, uh, we always start out trying to. Determine the circulation pattern around the piece of property and find the most interesting parts, elements of the property. And then if you were to go out there and just walk that property to see it, not even thinking about golf, if you were to go out there and spend the day walking around that property and try to see the, the interesting parts, the vistas, the long term vistas, but also maybe the rock outcroppings or interesting trees. Or, interesting stream or water break, whatever it might be. Once you knew those things were there, how would you go walk about for the day and do it where you could see those things and not feel like you're mountain climbing or you're not feeling like you're just doing it where it's just a physical challenge? Mm -hmm. How would you make it an enjoyable walk through property? So we sort of look at routing like that. How would you walk through this? How would you go through this property and touch upon the most interesting elements and do it in a way that's not physically, overly physically taxing. So that's that's kind of how we do that. But yeah, the, the animal trails play into that. I made the mistake, and I said that some years ago, then I were doing an interview with the media thing for the PJ Senior Championship at Colorado Golf Club. Mm-hmm. And during that, they had uh, someone ask the question, about we hear you You sometimes walk around on animal trails. And so I basically said what I just said. Next thing I know, I I think it was Gary Koch, I'm not sure, but one of the commentators for the championship says it's out on the air and it it comes out across like, oh, did you lay out the holes based on the animal trails? You know, well, it's not quite right. But it yes. is a good guy. Yeah. Abandoned trails, abandoned trails was full of trails, both animal trails and hiking trails. So that's why it has that name, mm-hmm. trails. I used to walk out there for days and days and days and, and study the property and make notes and maps and things. And uh, but some of that stuff, the gorse and stuff, you couldn't physically walk through anyway. Yeah, but. It's, there are a lot of holes and abandoned trails that were laid out, kind of following
0: trails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you had uh, run with the camping story, you would have inspired a whole new generation of architects that spent their time
1: camping on their sites? God, <laughs> yeah, I know. When you read those stories about Perry Maxwell at Prairie Dunes, supposedly, you know, being out there with some apples and water and a tent, so, uh, you know, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Maxwell had already lost one leg by this time. I doubt that he was out in the sand in the dunes there, prairie dunes. Mm-hmm. You know, well, he may have had apples and water with him, and you know, a way to get around. But I doubt that he was just camping out. Yeah, out there, you know.